0: Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are now in the home stretch, my friends, at least as far as Blizzard Entertainment's story so far is concerned. So, in our last episode, which uh, was longer for me than for you because I had a week of vacation between that episode and this one, I ended that episode just as Blizzard was launching what would become one of its major successes. In fact, its biggest success, the MMORPG. World of Warcraft. Now, I figure before I go on, it would help to explain what an MMORPG is for those of you who may not know. So, those letters stand for Massively Multiplayer Online role-playing Game. That helps break it down when you look at it that way. It's massively multiplayer because every server, which you connect to over the internet, that's the online part, so that part's taken care of. But every server could have up to thousands of players on it. Um, The early version of World of Warcraft had servers that supported between around 2,500 to 3,500 players, at least according to most accounts. I couldn't find an official Blizzard source that nailed it down, but somewhere between 2,500 to 3,500 players per server. Later versions of World of Warcraft would hike that number up further, and private servers could potentially hold more players, but there's a diminishing returns problem because an overloaded server would not run the game as smoothly and could have stability issues on top of that. Blizzard runs this game on hundreds of servers, and Blizzard calls them realms, which means you and your fellow gamers would have to choose which one of your characters will um, live on whichever realm so that you could all play together. You know, if you were on one realm and your friends were on a different realm, you would be in different instances of these fantasy worlds. So you wouldn't be able to interact with each other. The worlds would all be the same, but you wouldn't be in the same instance. So you had to make sure you were all picking the same server to play on. Role-playing games, uh, for their part, they involve a player taking on the role of a character. So to some degree, you could argue that all games in which you control some sort of avatar are a type of role-playing game. But stuff like simple arcade games, like you know Mario Brothers or something, or action-adventure games like Tomb Raider, have some limited role-playing, but it's very limited. You're really just controlling a digital character to maneuver through some sort of environment in those games. Role-playing games generally have you taking on more of the digital avatar's actions, including stuff that isn't so pivotal, like jumping or attacking or something. And some people take this further than others. Uh, They will type out in chat using character-appropriate phrasing and language. And so they're actually acting out a role. In fact, there are some servers that were better known for that kind of play. Other types of players find that kind of behavior really cringeworthy. And they'll just chat in modern language and slang. They'll use, you know, abbreviations and stuff to communicate things quickly to each other, using it more as a strategy game and looking at the game as sort of a series of achievements to to accomplish and not so much of playing out a role. Now, I'm not saying either version of gameplay is better or worse than the other. They're just different and they appeal to different types of gamers Uh, uh, I certainly have been the type who have enjoyed role-playing games where I play a role, but I've also been the type who I've seen some very awkward examples of that, and I have wanted to avoid it. So I get both schools of thought. Now, these games typically have missions in the form of quests that are handed out by NPCs or non-player characters. These are computer-controlled characters. Players can also join with other like-minded players to form their own groups or guilds. And they can go on coordinated missions or raids together. They can also wage war against players from opposing factions. So MMORPGs present a real challenge to game developers. Because on the one hand, you want players to feel as though their actions matter. And it sort of breaks the illusion that you're inhabiting a fantasy world if you, for example, you just finish a quest to return, I don't know, a frying pan to an elf, and then that elf turns around and offers that same lost frying pan quest to the person who's standing right next to you in the game, that kind of breaks the illusion because you literally just did that. But on the other hand, you can't really let the world change that much because Not everyone in the game world would be there at the same time, right? So they wouldn't see the world change until they logged in again, and then suddenly there would be content that would be unavailable to them because the world had literally changed at that point. New players should get the same chance to experience content the way everyone else does. Now, most of the time, MMORPGs err on the side of making sure everyone gets a chance to play the game the same way that means that the game world tends to be pretty static from day to day with some minor changes like World of Warcraft in particular changes throughout the year to reflect certain seasonal things like around Halloween you'll see some seasonally appropriate stuff appearing in the game but otherwise the game world doesn't really change that much unless there's a major expansion rolled out and that is one way that game developers can make big changes to the world. They can release expansion packs. Uh, World of Warcraft has done this multiple times and in some cases has made truly dramatic changes to the online world in the process. Uh, The mythical world in World of Warcraft is called Azeroth, And the game's events generally take place a few years after the events that were depicted in the real-time strategy game, Warcraft 3. So that story ends, and then you typically hear that four years later, you've got the events of World of Warcraft. Early on, when the game was first released, players had access to two continents that they could explore. But later, expansion packs increased the game areas dramatically and then transformed some of the existing ones quite extensively. Players could choose to play as one of several races of beings, which in turn determined which faction they belonged to. So in the original game, you could be human, dwarf, or a night elf, uh, or a gnome, and that represented the alliance faction. Or you could play as an orc, a troll, a tauren, which is a a humanoid with bull-like features, sort of like a minotaur. Uh, and the, or Minotaur if you prefer, and or the Forsaken, which were a race of undead creatures. They made up a faction called the Horde, and they still do. The choice of Alliance versus Horde determines lots of stuff, not just who your allies are and who your enemies are, but also which areas of the map you are able to explore and which quests will be available to you, and which bits of lore you will encounter as you play through the game. Later expansion packs would increase the number of races players would have access to, as well as the types of classes you could play. So not just your race, you also have to determine what class you are. This is sort of like what type or occupation your character has. So a player of either faction could become either a a druid, a hunter, a mage, a priest, a rogue, a warlock, or a warrior. And in addition, alliance players could be a paladin and horde players could be a shaman. Again, later expansion packs would increase the number of playable classes. So, for a monthly fee, players can create a character and go on quests throughout a persistent online world. They can form alliances with other players and they can unlock the somewhat complicated and frankly confusing story of Azeroth. Now... I say confusing only because I never really got into these games. So I didn't get an introduction. And by now, the lore is so deep that I can't really suss out what it means. Blizzard executives hoped that the company would be able to sell around 400,000 copies of the game within its first year of release. They thought, if we can sell 400,000 copies in the United States, then this will be a viable business and we can run the game they actually managed to hit 400,000 copies within the first month. That far outperformed their hopes. Of course, that also meant that they had to quickly ramp up more servers to host games because they were starting to fill up to capacity pretty quickly. That's not a bad problem to have, except in those cases where players who were joining the game relatively late were having trouble linking up with friends because their friends were on more crowded servers and there was no availability for them to log into those same servers. The later expansions, by the way, include, here are all the names, The Burning Crusade, Wrath of the Lich King, Cataclysm, that's the one that really dramatically changed the online world and made new areas accessible while eliminating some traditional areas in the base game, uh, Mists of Pandaria, Warlords of Dranor, Legion, Battle of Azeroth, and then there's the upcoming Shadowlands expansion. I'm not going to go into all of these because, honestly, I could do a full episode just dedicated to World of Warcraft and all these different expansions, but that's really going too far. Uh, But this was generally a way for Blizzard Entertainment to provide ongoing content for dedicated players who might otherwise have experienced pretty much everything the, the base game had to offer. I mean, if you have advanced your character to as maximum a level as is allowable in the game and you've pretty much explored the whole world, you might not have any reason to keep playing that game. And this is one of the major differences between an MMORPG and a standalone game, right? Because with a traditional standalone game, the old style standalone games, you would go out and purchase the game and that would be it. You would play the game and you'd play it as long as you wanted and maybe you finish it, maybe you don't, whatever, but you've already purchased it. You've, you've laid down your money and that is the end of the revenue stream in that traditional approach. Companies like Blizzard began to develop expansion titles to generate additional revenue, right? You would expand the base game and typically those expansions required the player to own the original copy of the game itself. So in those cases, you would sell the base game to players They hopefully love the game. They want more of it. So you create an expansion that keeps those players happy. They stay in the game world they love and they get to play more content and they buy the expansion. That's the most important part. They put down new money to keep playing the game they've already played. Plus, you might even attract new players to your game, but those folks have to buy both the expansion and the original game if they want to get all the content. They can't just buy the expansion because the expansion is built on top of the existing game. So with an MMORPG, you also have a monthly subscription fee, and that is a healthy stream of revenue coming into the company. At its peak, World of Warcraft had about 12 million active player accounts around the world. When it originally launched, the base game of World of Warcraft cost about $50, and there was also a collector's edition if you wanted to pony up $80, a princely sum. Either version of those games included a one month subscription, but after that month, you would have to subscribe at one of three plans. The month-to-month plan, where you're just paying for each month of service as you're playing, was $15 every month. A three-month package would knock that down to being equivalent to about $14 per month. And if you committed to six months of a package, it would be it would even out to more like $13 per month. So you, know, you buy in bulk and you save money, I guess. The game was a huge hit, and so every month those subscriptions were rolling in as additional revenue. But it was also clear that Blizzard would need to keep adding more content to keep the players engaged, or else they were likely to become bored and disenchanted and walk away once their subscription lapsed. And that's where those expansions came in. The first one, The Burning Crusade, launched three years after the base game. It launched in 2007. Uh, Blizzard had announced it way back in October 2005 and intended to launch it earlier. But as is the case with Blizzard, they wanted to make sure that the expansion was absolutely as good as it could be before they, they pushed it out the door. So they delayed its launch in order to make sure that it was right. Uh, this is one of those things about Blizzard that becomes like a an ongoing thing with that company. They frequently would delay launches in order to try and get something just right. And I think more often than not, that ended up benefiting the company because uh, while it is frustrating to see a launch date get pushed back, it's way more frustrating to get a broken game and have to wait for something to get patched so that it's playable. The expansion, The Burning Crusade, sold 2.4 million copies in the first 24 hours. Now, keep in mind, the original game sold 400,000 copies in the first month. This expansion sold 2.4 million copies in 24 hours. It broke PC game sale records back in uh, those days. So it was the fastest selling PC game at that time. Now, like the base game, players would have to cough up some dough to buy this expansion pack, like 30 bucks. And then they would also then have to maintain their subscription to continue playing the game. In 2011, Blizzard chose to roll in all the content from the Burning Crusade into the base game. So if you went and bought World of Warcraft from 2011 on... The Burning Crusade was included with it. You wouldn't have to go out and purchase the expansion pack. And this would be the start of a trend that the company would follow over time leading up to the present practice where the base game includes all of the previous expansion packs, except for whatever is the most recent one. And that one you would have to purchase to get access to that. But everything else would already be included in the base game. In 2018, the company also made the base game free to all players. So you don't even have to buy World of Warcraft anymore. You can play the game for free, uh, or at least you can get access to the game for free, but you have to pay for the monthly subscription so that you can actually continue to play the game. So if you wanted to play World of Warcraft right now, you would not have to buy the the base game. You would just have to pay for the monthly subscription to be able to do so. Blizzard also let players advance up to level 20 without having to subscribe to the game, giving players a taste, maybe just enough to to get hooked before the players would hit a level cap that they could not go beyond without subscribing to the full game. Another thing Blizzard introduced in World of Warcraft were microtransactions, which really got started back in 2009. The company allowed players to spend real-world money, you know, cash money, to buy in-game pets for their characters. And the pets were cosmetic additions. That meant that they didn't change the gameplay at all. They didn't give advantages to players. They're just sort of cute additions to the game. And this was when a player could opt to have a Pandaren monk. A Pandaren is sort of an anthropomorphic panda. You could have that as a pet. Which is a bit weird, because later on in another expansion, The Mists of Pandaria, you could play as a Pandaren. Yikes. Later on, Blizzard would introduce many other potential microtransactions, and the company didn't do this, you know, universally. Uh, Some in-game items were only sold in certain markets, such as Asia. Asia had uh, consumables in World of Warcraft that they could purchase, but in other markets, that was not an option. So Blizzard was kind of weighing out where these strategies would work best, and, uh, you know, Maximizing that revenue the expansion packs and microtransactions would become an enormous sea change in the world of video games developing games is expensive one estimate for the cost of developing World of Warcraft the the base game of World of Warcraft was around 65 million dollars to develop that game. And, of course, businesses exist in order to create profits. So business owners are always interested in finding new ways to generate streams of revenue. When it's done well, then it can enhance the experience of a game. And players typically are are happy to get more of what they love. When it's done poorly, it creates a sense that you have to pay to win the game and that players who have more cash to burn end up with an unfair advantage over everyone else who might really be into the game, but they might not have the spare change to buy all the doodads and knickknacks. Interestingly, this tied back to an idea that the original Diablo team had, if you remember from my previous episodes. In that concept, players would end up buying a physical CD that would contain in-game items that they could use to enhance their characters, like weapons and armor and that kind of stuff. This was early enough that delivering stuff digitally online wasn't as popular as using physical media. People still went out and bought CDs, and some people still do, but it's increasingly rare. Now it's almost all digital delivery. Well, ultimately, the Diablo team did not pursue that strategy, which was probably for the best since the rampant cheating in that game would have made that additional material moot anyway. Recently, Blizzard Entertainment released World of Warcraft Classic, which updates many things about the original game, but brings back the game world and the quests that players could find if they had logged in way back in 2004 when the game first launched. The version of World of Warcraft... Uh, is now running parallel to but, but separate from the ongoing official World of Warcraft game that has evolved over the course of all those expansion sets. So now you've got two flavors of World of Warcraft. You've got the one that has evolved over the time since 2004 with all those expansion packs, and you have World of Warcraft Classic, that is the way the game came out originally, with some enhancements thrown in. And it's a nod to those loyal fans of the series who missed the good old days of the original World of Warcraft. The game's subscription fees and the number of active players means that a rough estimate of the revenue generated by this game is at its peak around a billion dollars per year, which is crazy crazy. Uh, That number has fluctuated over time. It it peaked at 12 million and it went into decline afterward. But it's still an incredibly popular MMORPG and still a healthy moneymaker for Blizzard. All right, so that's our basic rundown on World of Warcraft. And of course, we could spend a lot more time going over all of the details. But instead, I'm going to take a quick break and then get back to what was happening to the company in general over the last decade or so. So let's take a quick break. Running a business is no cakewalk. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. the enormous early success of World of Warcraft had a downside because it meant that projects like StarCraft II and Diablo III would actually receive less attention so that Blizzard could cater to the WoW community, World of Warcraft community. Then, if you listened to my last episode, you know that two major camps from Blizzard North, that was the team responsible for creating Diablo and Diablo 2, two camps had split off from Blizzard North to form new video game development studios, and that left the Blizzard North team severely understaffed and without key leadership. Diablo 3, as a result, was floundering in development. The art design was stuck at least a generation behind. The team was having trouble creating a good game, and Blizzard's new owner, Vivendi, was still kind of a scary shadow over the whole company. So ultimately, the leaders at Blizzard South decided that to make games up to the standards of Blizzard... They needed to be able to oversee the whole process, that, and they couldn't really do that from Southern California for a team that was located in the Bay Area in Northern California. This is exactly the kind of thing that Blizzard North was trying to protect itself from in its early days. And so, with all those considerations, Blizzard South decided to shut down Blizzard North, and... Uh, That was the branch that had formerly been known as Condor. So Blizzard South uh, offered jobs to the teams up at Blizzard North. They said, you can still work for Blizzard, but to do it, you're going to have to move down to Southern California. So some people, but not everybody, took them up on that offer. So that meant that it would almost be an entirely new team working on Diablo 3, and as part of that they decided to start over from scratch. So that set that project back considerably. In October 2005, Blizzard hosted the first BlizzCon in Anaheim, California. This was a convention for fans of the company's games. So attendees got early looks at games in development, including StarCraft Ghost, which would ultimately be canceled. So some people got a chance to kind of get some hands-on time with early builds of games that just never came out. They attended presentations that were given by Blizzard employees about the games and the lore around the games, the art design, all that kind of stuff. And the company would hold another one in 2007. So between 2005 and 2007 was the year 2006. There was no BlizzCon that year. But from 2007 onward, it would become an annual event. It became so popular and so useful that... Eventually, Blizzard decided that in 2009, it wouldn't go to E3 anymore. It didn't need to because it had its own promotional event with a very engaged group of of users. The community of Blizzard was really passionate about this. So why would they go to E3 where they would just be another company competing for attention from press and retailers? And we've seen other companies follow Blizzard's lead, and many of them now hold their own events, and either they also attend E3 or they skip E3 entirely. Uh, Their events tend to be a little less elaborate than BlizzCon tends to be. So they don't tend to be full-on conferences the way BlizzCon is, but uh, they are similar in effect in that it's a company holding its own event on its own terms instead of sticking with E3. In 2006, the year without a BlizzCon, Blizzard made another big announcement. The studio revealed that it had entered into a project with the movie studio Legendary Pictures for the purposes of developing a Warcraft motion picture. Now, the original plan was to script and shoot a movie in time for a 2009 release, And this whole move to doing a film wasn't that surprising, because since 2000, Blizzard had been publishing novels that were set in the Warcraft universe, and they were also exploring opportunities in other media, like comic books. So the original plan was that Sam Raimi, who had just recently finished directing Spider-Man 2, to come over and direct the Warcraft movie. However, like some other Blizzard projects, This one hit more than a few snags in development and would not launch in 2009. There were issues with the script, and there was a real struggle to turn the film into something other than just another generic fantasy epic— The Lord of the Rings films had set a pretty high bar, and there was a real danger of being viewed as sort of a copycat of that franchise. So as time went on, Sam Raimi would leave the project to pursue other opportunities, and Duncan Jones, the son of David Bowie, signed on to direct the Warcraft movie. Jones worked with Blizzard to create a new script, reportedly because he felt that the initial draft fell into the cliché of Humans are the good guys, orcs are the bad guys, and they fight. He wanted there to be more ambiguity in the story and for both sides to have motivations that the audience could get behind. Actually, ultimately, some critics would say that the orcs got a much deeper presentation than the humans did, and uh, so it almost erred on the flip side of what Jones was concerned about. Now, all of this meant that the movies released was delayed multiple times. It missed the initial plan to premiere in 2009, it missed another date in 2011, and Blizzard remained tight-lipped about the film for a good long while. Like after they announced it, they didn't really talk about it so much. But while progress was slow and intermittent, it was at least happening. And in 2016, the movie was finally ready for audiences a decade after it had been announced and 160 million dollars reportedly for the budget. Its global box office got a little close to half a billion dollars, but it was still largely viewed as a commercial failure. Uh, It actually made less than $50 million in the United States. Now I cannot comment on the quality of the movie, because I never saw it. But on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 28% approval rating, uh, meaning it's a rotten film. But just a quick reminder for you guys, 28% on Rotten Tomatoes does not mean that the movie is way worse than, say, a different movie that got a 40% rating, because the percentage doesn't actually tell you how good or bad a film is. Rather, it tells you the percentage of critics who uh, gave the film either a positive or a negative review, and these are critics that Rotten Tomatoes recognizes as legitimate critics. So it's not all critics. It's a selection of them. And it's really more like saying around 30% of the critics who reviewed the film gave it a mediocre to positive response. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the movie is objectively better or worse than other movies that have similar scores, or even scores that are slightly higher or slightly lower. Also, I should add that the audience score for the film is much higher, at 76%. So the critics weren't thrilled with it, but... You know, audiences seem to be more positive about the whole thing. Now, considering Blizzard Entertainment's reputation for highly produced cutscenes in video games, some of which featured animation that could easily rival that of the CGI you found in feature films, I'm sure this came as a major disappointment to the company. It still exceeded the performance of most other video game film adaptations, But that bar wasn't set terribly high to begin with. I mean, just watch the Super Mario Bros. movie. So maybe that wasn't such a stretch goal. The critical consensus was that the movie was just too deeply mired in mythology that might be familiar to hardcore Warcraft players, but not to anyone else. And so there were entire sequences that were inscrutable and absurd to someone just viewing the material for the first time. While Duncan Jones expressed a desire to continue the storyline, In 2018, he tweeted that such a possibility was, at best, unlikely. Okay, so let's rewind again to 2007, and you may wonder why I'm not talking about other games that Blizzard was making right now. That's because Blizzard was really dedicating the vast majority of its focus on World of Warcraft, which, again, makes sense when you realize how that game was responsible for the financial performance of the company overall. So, 2007 would be a really big year for Blizzard. Part of that was because they launched the Burning Crusade, which was uh, the World of Warcraft's first expansion pack that year. Another reason was that the World of Warcraft game would hit 8.5 million subscribers. Big milestone. Blizzard also announced that StarCraft II would officially become a thing in 2007. They did that during their third worldwide invitational event. That's an event that takes place in South Korea where StarCraft uh, competition is huge. But above all of that was another big corporate move outside of Blizzard's direct control. So Vivendi, the parent company, announced that it was going into a merger deal with the video game company Activision, and that would happen toward the end of 2007 when they announced this. Uh, The actual acquisition happened in 2008. So Activision and Vivendi Games, the the division of Vivendi that was all about games, obviously, they would come together and they would form a new kind of parent company, a publishing company, really, and it was going to be called Activision Blizzard. Not Activision Vivendi, Activision Blizzard. That's how much clout Blizzard had. They could demand that their name would get equal billing with Activision. So this new company would still trade on the NASDAQ stock exchange under the Activision ticker of ATVI. And the merger would make Activision Blizzard the world's largest video game publisher. Activision was riding high at that time from the release of Call of Duty 4, Modern Warfare. Uh, Vivendi Games was enjoying the tremendous financial success of World of Warcraft. And the company, Vivendi Games, had a value of $8.1 billion at that time. And according to uh, a lot of sources, they would contribute about $1.7 billion toward this acquisition deal. So when you lump That cash offering, along with the value of the company, that comes up to $9.8 billion. That's a lot of cheddar right there. A princely sum if ever there was one. In return, Vivendi would get a 52% stake in Activision Blizzard. Activision's CEO, a guy named Bobby Kotick, would head up the new company, and the two companies completed the acquisition as I said in 2008. Now, skipping ahead a bit, just to stick with this particular part of the story, about six years later, Kodak would lead an investment group to purchase most of that 52% of the ownership from Vivendi, and they did it with a, an offer of 8.2 billion dollars. Now, remember, Vivendi Games when it went into this acquisition was worth 8.1, so. They offer $8.2 billion and buy back most of that stake. Vivendi would still hold on to a little bit more of its ownership uh, of Activision Blizzard, but it did divest itself of those shares in two future transactions. One happened in 2014 and one for 2016. And together, they accounted for about $2 billion combined, uh, which I realize I just said in a redundant and repetitive way. I just want to reiterate that. As Brendan Sinclair of gamesindustry.biz would observe, that would mean that Vivendi itself would effectively hand over $9.8 billion. That would be the, the value of the company and the cash they paid during the acquisition. And in return, 10 years later it would net $10.15 billion. That's a net gain of around $350 million, which is a princely sum, but it represents just a 3.5% gain in value over a decade. Whereas if you had just purchased shares in the company back when the acquisition happened and sat on them and then sold them when Vivendi sold off the final shares, you would have seen a return of 367%. So not a great move on Vivendi's part. They made this decision, by the way, because the company, Vivendi, was in $13 billion of debt around that time. So they needed to be able to sell off assets in order to to settle some of that debt. Now, granted, none of that is really a concern for Blizzard, the video game development company. It was more of a, a, a questionable mark on Blizzard's parent company and the decisions of its executive team, that being Vivendi Games. As for Blizzard, the company was able to operate almost as if it were an independent studio even under this merger because the revenue it was bringing in made it an incredibly uh, valuable asset. So it just made sense not to mess with it too much. So while Activision Blizzard would publish the games... Blizzard, the development company, because it's a different thing, would otherwise operate without too much interference from anyone higher up on the chain, at least for the time being, because Blizzard had that much clout. In 2008, it was more Warcraft, with music from the games becoming tracks on iTunes and the second expansion for WoW that being Wrath of the Lich King that launched at the end of 2008. And like its predecessor, the expansion pack broke PC sales records for most copies sold within 24 hours. And around that time, WoW hit a subscription base of 11 million players, so almost at its peak. Blizzard would not release another title until 2010. And that's when StarCraft II Wings of Liberty finally came out, 12 years after the original title had published way back in 1998. Now, along with the game, Blizzard released an updated version of its Battle.net service. Uh, Eventually, Blizzard would update Battle.net so that it was sort of a universal login for all Blizzard games, including World of Warcraft. Eager gamers Zerg rushed the stores to get their copies of StarCraft II. Uh, And you know what? I never even talked about the Zerg rush in the previous episode, but I guess I should because it's a meme that goes beyond the games itself. So here we go. So in the StarCraft games, one of the three faction or races that you can control as a player are an insectoid race called the Zerg. Z-E-R-G. An early unit that you can produce with the Zerg are the Zerglings, which are not terribly powerful, but if you're fast, if you're really a fast player, you can produce a whole bunch of them early on in a game. So there's a tactic that was really developed in South Korea, where Starcraft is a popular sport, and that tactic is to produce as many zerglings as you possibly can early in the game, and then you send them to overwhelm and wipe out an opponent while your opponent is still just getting set up. It's called a Zerg Rush. Also in the lore is that Korean players who use this tactic would end up responding to opponents. Their opponents would cry out in alarm. They'd say, oh my God, Zerg Rush. And the South Koreans would respond with ki-ki-ki, K ki, ki, E K E K E. That's similar to how you would write l o l o l l you know, laugh out loud over and over, LOLOLOLOL. Uh, and it was meant to convey a kind of mischievous chuckle. The meme got popular enough for Google to use it in an Easter egg in 2012, and if you search the term Zerg Rush in Google, you get a little playable game in which lowercase O letters start to come out and destroy all your search results. It's adorable. Anyway, the general reception was that StarCraft II was more than worth the wait. It delivered upon its promise. The game was set just a few years after the events of the Starcraft Brood War expansion pack. So even though the actual game came out 12 years later, it was set four years later. It would be followed by three expansion packs of its own, the first two of which gave more in-depth treatment to one of the three factions in the game. The human faction was actually taken care of in the initial release of the base game, which, you know, typical. Critics loved the game. They said it was one of the best RTS titles for the PC ever. Now, when we come back, I'm going to catch you up on what's been going on since Starcraft 2 with Blizzard Entertainment. But first, let's take another quick break. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan. And on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Starcraft 2 debuted in mid 2010. Blizzard Entertainment put out another expansion for World of Warcraft in 2011, but otherwise no new titles. In 2012, Blizzard published Diablo 3 to great anticipation and once again the company saw one of its titles break records for the most copies sold within 24 hours. Now, as i mentioned earlier, this version of Diablo 3 was different from what the creators of Diablo had originally intended. The leaders behind the Diablo franchise had not been part of Blizzard since 2003 when they all left in mass. And uh, and Blizzard North, the studio that had actually developed Diablo and Diablo 2, ceased to exist in 2005. So the team that built Diablo 3 included some folks who are famous for working on other big games for different companies. For example, Leonard Boyarski, who worked as a head designer on the game, had been one of the original creators for the game series Fallout. And there was also Jay Wilson, who worked on titles like Company of Heroes and Warhammer 40K, and he served as the lead designer for Diablo 3. In some ways, the game was very similar to previous versions of Diablo. It had an emphasis on loot to boost a player's abilities and stats. It used an overhead view that was similar to the isometric view that Diablo and Diablo 2 used. Uh, It also had some new things like destructible environments where you could have certain effects that actually would affect the environment you were in. That was new. All the other environments in uh, Diablo and Diablo 2, although they were randomly generated, were largely static. So that was kind of cool. This was done, uh, it was made possible by the fact that Blizzard was using its own proprietary engine that had been built out of a a previously established game engine. One thing that Diablo 3 had that did not excite people too much was a requirement for all gamers, which was if you wanted to play the game, you had to have a persistent online connection, even if you were only playing as a single player. So, You're playing a single-player game. The game exists on your computer. You still had to have a persistent internet connection to Blizzard's servers. Uh, This was a DRM feature. DRM stands for Digital Rights Management. It was meant to ensure that the people who were playing the game were using authorized copies of the game because Blizzard had seen many of its titles pirated. StarCraft II in particular had a huge problem with people pirating the game. So this was a way to make sure that the people who were playing the game were doing so on authorized copies, that they had purchased the game. The online requirement left some critics and some players unhappy. Uh, Server issues during high demand made this worse. I mean, if a server goes down, you cannot verify that your copy is legitimate. You could have gone out and bought a game, spent money supporting the video game company, brought it home, and found out you can't play it because they're authentication server is down that's not great that is an example of how legitimate players can feel like they're being punished for playing by the rules when they say hey if i had broken the rules and i had found a way to get around this i could actually play the game i i paid for so why are you punishing me which is a pretty legit argument if you ask me Uh, it's it's not easy to explain to a player why they can't enjoy a single player experience on a game they've purchased and installed on their computer just because their internet connection goes down or a server goes offline. So that was a kind of black mark against Diablo 3. Now, since Diablo 3, we've seen lots of other games use this same method of DRM. And I don't think gamers are any happier about this, but a lot of them have sort of become used to it just because it's become kind of a, a common... Uh, strategy among a lot of different game developers now between 2012 and 2014 blizzard released expansion packs for starcraft 2 and world of warcraft as well as a console version of diablo 3 but that was it there were no other new games coming out in 2012 to 2014 but in 2014 blizzard would actually release a brand new game Now granted, it was a brand new game that was still tied to the Warcraft universe, so it wasn't totally original IP, but the game was called Hearthstone, still an incredibly popular game. This is a digital card game similar to physical trading card games like Magic the Gathering. So in Hearthstone, you are a player who's building a deck of cards that contains various units and abilities. And you're using it in an effort to take down opponents who have their own deck of cards. And your opponents might be computer-controlled, or they might be other human players. More importantly, it's a game that's absolutely married to the concept of microtransactions. Now, you can play the game without making in-game purchases. uh, But the fastest way to augment a deck is to buy packs of virtual cards. So it's like buying a, a booster pack and then you can construct a deck of 30 cards that best matches your playing style. You can't guarantee that you're going to have any particular card in your hand when you start off, but you can create a deck that's more likely to be useful at various stages of a match. Uh, The game is free to play, so you can play Hearthstone without ever spending a dime on it if you want to, but if you're going up against other players who are purchasing booster packs, that might prove to be a challenge because your odds of getting a card you might really need uh, in order to build a good deck are low, and it takes a lot more time to earn booster packs than it does to just buy them outright. Blizzard's released a lot of new cards for the game several times since it has introduced Hearthstone, and in November 2019, the company announced not only an expansion for the game, but also a new game mode within Hearthstone called Battlegrounds, which is what is called an auto-battler. And I had to actually look this up because I had no idea what an auto-battler was. I play video games, but I had not come across this term. So in an auto-battler, there is a board upon which players can place pieces. And it's kind of like a chess game, You, but you can actually figure out where you're going to put each piece. And the pieces they select And the positions that they take determine their side's strengths and weaknesses. And their opponent does the same thing on their side. Then they get matched up together and the conflict automatically resolves. So players are not directing anything at that point. They've already made all their choices based upon the pieces they've picked and the positions they've chosen, and the computer system determines which side wins based on the criteria, and it all sounds like a type of game I'd be really, really terrible at. As for Hearthstone, it has been in the news recently as of the recording of this podcast due to some political controversies and Blizzard's response to them. So in October 2019, a professional Hearthstone player expressed support for Hong Kong protesters who, as of this recording, are still protesting against the Chinese government for reasons that are far too complicated to get into in this podcast but are very important. Blizzard banned the player who supported Hong Kong from the tournament that the player was participating in and banned them from all future tournaments and essentially said, you don't get to earn any money off of Hearthstone anymore. And they cited a rule that said players are not allowed to do anything that would bring the game or Blizzard into disrepute. Uh, or to hurt their public image in some way. But that really opens up an entire can of worms because a lot of people suggested that it made Blizzard appear to be complicit with the actions and philosophy of the Chinese government, which, if you've listened to my episode about why is everything made in China, you'll understand that's not necessarily a great thing. And after a lot of criticism, the company walked back some of the penalties it placed on this professional gamer. They reduced those penalties, but they didn't remove them entirely. And the situation was made more complicated by the fact that the Chinese government, Tencent, owns a stake in Activision Blizzard. So this led to a big discussion about how more and more companies are at least becoming partly dependent upon Chinese companies and that Chinese companies, by and large, are state-backed entities or even state-owned entities, which means that the Chinese government itself has influence over those companies. And so you could argue that through these Chinese companies, the Chinese government is exerting political influence on companies that are in other parts of the world. Uh, And that appears to be what happened in this case. So it's still a situation that's unfolding as of the recording of this episode. uh, And it's something that has extended far beyond just Blizzard. There's been a lot of discussion about this for other types of companies, largely media companies. Let's get back to the timeline. In 2015, Blizzard released Heroes of the Storm, which was a multiplayer online battle arena game, or MOBA. Uh, This game features characters from various Blizzard titles and pits players in an arena in which teams try to establish control over the playing area. So generally speaking with a MOBA, uh, typically you play as part of a team and you have a goal of protecting your team and your little home base while you battle for control of the playing board and your ultimate goal is to defeat the opposing team by either completely Uh, exhausting their resources by killing off all of their their units or by invading their side of the board and taking it over and making sure that they don't have control over any part of the board. There are various ways of getting to a win scenario. So this game kind of marries strategy with action. In 2016... Blizzard released the team-based shooter Overwatch, and this game has lots of different modes of play ranging from stuff like zone offense or defense games or escort missions and other types of of games, but it's all in the style of a first-person shooter with a a, team-based first-person shooter. So players take on the roles of one of several characters. I think there's up to 30 now. Uh, each of those characters have their own strengths and weaknesses and abilities, and play is really fast-paced. And a good team, like a team that actually knows each other's strengths, they can really coordinate to be incredibly effective. Watching a, a team where they, they really know each other and they know how to communicate, watching them play this game is insane. Um, I've played the game casually online with people I didn't know. And we are obviously nowhere close to as effective because we don't have that level of communication and familiarity. Uh, Also, I found out that I am most useful as a support class character, like someone who gives healing boosts and stuff, because turns out people can move faster than I can see. And so if I land a a shot on someone, it's almost always by accident. So I'm really impressed by people who are really good at this game. Over time, Blizzard has released updates to Overwatch with new characters. It didn't start off with 30, but that's how many it has now. And the company has reported that since its release, the game has earned a billion dollars in revenue with more than 50 million players. And like many other Blizzard games, this one also has microtransactions in which players can purchase loot boxes. Uh, Opening up a loot box gives you a chance to win certain types of items. You will get items in every loot box you open. It might not be the ones you want, but you'll get something. And they have different levels of rarity. So some you might just get a bunch of common pieces of uh, of cosmetic stuff like it's not meant to influence the actual gameplay you're not supposed to get any advantages like you're not going to be able to jump higher or move faster or anything you'll look different or you might have a different catchphrase you can say in the game or a different pose you might make before or after a match but otherwise it's not supposed to really affect gameplay so the idea is that yeah It's a way to make money, but you could play the game without ever buying a loot box, and it's not going to change the actual gameplay. Uh, However, loot boxes in general are now a controversial topic. A lot of governments around the world are investigating as to whether or not they, they constitute gambling, since you cannot guarantee you're going to get a particular item when you purchase a loot box. But these are things that are obviously of monetary value, or else they would not be able to sell loot boxes. It's um, something that has not yet been resolved, so we'll have to revisit that concept in the future. During BlizzCon 2019, Blizzard announced that it was working on the sequel to Overwatch, Overwatch 2, and that it would allow players to port over the stuff they've unlocked from the first game, which is good because if you spend a lot of time and or money unlocking your favorite costumes for your favorite characters, you'd probably be a little ticked off if that didn't transfer over to the sequel. Other upcoming Blizzard games include Diablo Immortal, which was – it is a Diablo game based for mobile devices like smartphones. Uh, When they announced that at BlizzCon uh, a while back, (laughs) um, it did not get a good reception. Fans were unhappy because they really wanted a full-blown Diablo sequel and it looked like they were going to have to settle for a – what they viewed as a watered-down experience for mobile. However, in BlizzCon 2019, the company did announce Diablo 4, the the actual full PC sequel to Diablo 3, uh, and that got a slightly better response. Some other little notes. In 2018, Michael Morhaime, one of the three original founders of the company, announced that he was leaving Blizzard, although he would remain on as sort of an advisory role. Uh, He had been serving as president for, you know, A couple decades, and Jay Allen Brack, who had been with the company since 2006, and who had served as the executive producer of World of Warcraft, would take over as the president of the company. The following summer in 2019, Frank Pierce, uh, the third original co-founder, announced that he was retiring and would leave Blizzard as well. Now, you might remember from a previous episode, I mentioned that Alan Adham had left in the mid 2000s. He wanted to pursue a career in in finance uh, he had been totally burnt out on the process of developing games, and he needed to kind of step away. Well, he actually returned to Blizzard in 2016, so he still serves as a senior vice president at Blizzard Entertainment. So while he was the first of the original founders to leave, he's now the last one to still be there because he came back in 2016. He's also the founder that Pierce and Morheim both credited with being the actual force that brought the company together. So I just find it interesting that he returned not long before the other two co-founders decided to step away. Now, over the last year or so, the company has been at the center of criticism, not just because of the Hong Kong controversy, but also because they cut jobs while they were also posting record profits, which that seemed weird to people. There's been a concern that Activision is pushing a more aggressive approach to managing costs and maximizing profits uh, at the expense of the quality of the games. You know, this is tough for a company that really established a reputation of making sure a game is absolutely the best it can be before it launches. So that's been an issue for Blizzard recently as well. That being said, there's still an enormous amount of anticipation for Blizzard games. Uh, Their game's tend to be really well-received by critics and by fans alike. It's not a guarantee in every case, obviously, but they've got a really strong track record. So they're still weathering some pretty rough criticisms, and the Activision connection remains something that a lot of fans are very leery about. But I expect that we're going to continue to see a lot of passionate support and anticipation around their games. And BlizzCon every year is a testament to that because it sells out within half an hour of tickets going on sale. So uh, I believe that it happens every year in Anaheim, California. I have never been. I know I've got friends who go there or have gone there pretty much every year. Uh, one of these years, I'm going to have to try and get my way over there. But, you know, hey, Blizzard, if you ever want me to out there, let me know. Otherwise, uh, I'll just have to take some vacation time. Not that I am above that. I'd be happy to. But if I can get there, you know, if you want me to go there, I'll just come out there, you know. So that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff, this exhaustive look at Blizzard. Uh, it was fun to take a deeper look at this company and to really look at some of the things that drove the decisions behind Blizzard. Uh, making those games, as well as some of the stories, like the controversies behind them that I wasn't really familiar with before I started researching this. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget, we have our website, techstuffpodcast.com, that has our archive of every episode, Tech Stuff has ever recorded. And you can also find a link to our online store, where every purchase you make goes to help the show. We greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.